we are in our second week of Advent, uh, not on the calendar, but on our church service. So we've started Advent last week, and now we're kind of four days into the Advent season, uh, kind of leading up to Christmas. And Advent means the arrival of an important person. And so what Advent this season is, every December, it's a season of anticipation and preparation as we're remembering backwards the arrival of Jesus, incarnate in person in the world, and then we're also anticipating forward his second coming, that he will Advent again. He will come again with uh, rescue in the future. And so the season is meant to give us hope and joy that's built both on the historical past as well as the prophesied future. And what it's, Advent is doing specifically is it's reminding us not only that Jesus exists, it's reminding us not only that he exists, but that he came and that he arrived incarnate, which means embodied or in the flesh. And he chose to take on human form. And if I can allow myself to be a skeptical, Western, empirically naturalist-minded person, the idea that God became a person is super-duper bizarre. Right, like that's straight out of Greek mythology, like Zeus coming down and getting some lady pregnant. Like that's weird, right? Um, we probably, at first blush, have some skepticism about that. And again, it's not necessarily appealing to us who live in a science-based, not that science is bad, but science-based, if I can't see it, touch it, I don't believe in it, culture. But what I'm hoping gets communicated today is that there's a cohesiveness to the story of God that makes Jesus taking on flesh reasonable. And it makes it beautiful, and it makes it compelling, and it makes it trustworthy. Because I think that logically understood, the story of God brings joy. Logically understood, the story of God brings joy. And that's our focus for this season, is that we have joy, joy for Christmas, and that the joy of Christmas is Jesus. Above all the other fanfare, like the anchor, the bedrock of our joy is that Jesus exists, and that he came, and that he will come again. Now, all of this is to say Jesus took on human form for a purpose. He didn't do it willy-nilly. He arrived in order to accomplish something. And what he accomplished is joyous. And what he accomplished will provide the sturdy kind of joy that you can build your life on. And my main point in everything today is this, that the incarnation of Jesus means no one is too far gone to receive God's mercy and a transformed life. The incarnation of Jesus shows us definitively no one is too far gone to receive God's mercy and a transformed life. Now, Trevor, back that up for a second. Like, that's a pretty bold claim, right? No one is a very big category. God's mercy and a transformed life is a very big promise. And if I look back at the reality of the world I see, I could say, I know some pretty awful people. Are you sure no one is too far gone? You don't know what's been done to me, Trevor. You don't know what I've done to other people. Have you watched the news lately? No one is too far gone. Would you read with me our main text of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15? I'm reading out of the ESV. I'll give you a moment to get there in the Black Bibles. I forgot which page it's on, but we're in 1 Timothy. It's in the latter half of your Bible. You can see skinny little wedge. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. It'll also be on the screen if you want to follow along. Paul writes this. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were, will, believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king of the ages, who is immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me really quick? Father, I thank you for your word and your scripture, uh, this historical record um, that we have that teaches us about who you are. It, it reveals who you are, not based on our opinion and our guts, but based on something factual and substantial. Would you be with us here, Spirit? Um, teach us. Show us who you are. Amen. So before we spend a little bit more time in 1 Timothy, uh, what I want to do is provide a little bit of background, and then I want to reread most of chapter one, giving you some preceding context. So here's just some background of what's going on. <clears throat> Paul, the apostle, is writing to Timothy, who is his protege. And Timothy has been sent as a young pastor to aid in the health of a local church in Ephesus. So, and this local church is suffering from a few things. They've approached the story of God and the gospel of Jesus in such a way that it's resulted in religiosity, legalism, theological speculation, vain argumentation, anger, quarreling, pride, vanity, selfishness, and the misuse of authority. Does that potentially sound familiar? <laughs> now, one of the reasons that I trust the Bible as a historical record is because it's so frank about the church's dysfunction. It's almost like the writers of the Bible believed that God's main purpose was to fix broken people and they have no fear in admitting their own brokenness. It's almost as though they believe that. Now, as we're about to read in chapter one, you'll see that Paul's charging Timothy to do three main things as a church leader. He's asking him to guide the church in these three ways. Number one, away from poor doctrines that are born out of human speculation and argumentation. Number two, he's helping Timothy help the church to understand the purpose of the Old Testament and the law. And three, he's helping this church recenter on the joy of Jesus, much like we're hoping to do in this Advent season. So would you read with me a majority of chapter one in 1 Timothy? We're going to jump in here. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord to you. Now, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now pause for a second, just to summarize. Paul's just saying these church leaders are studying myths, they're studying Old Testament genealogies, and they're speculating, and all of this is leading to vain discussions and bad theology. And they've swerved from stewarding God's church with love, pure hearts, and good consciences and sincere faith. Basically, they've replaced gospel leadership with hypothesizing and personal posturing. Would you jump back into verse 8? Paul continues, Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but 
for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for the murderers, for sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Now, one more quick pause. Paul's just simply saying the law exists to help us understand the reality that we are sinful and we need the rescue of, love, of a loving God. If I could just give a quick parallel, it's like saying the law is a mirror, right? If I have something in my teeth and I don't, I don't know it unless someone either points it out to me or I see it in a mirror. And so the law is mirroring back to me so I can understand myself more fully. I cannot understand my own sinfulness unless I can look into the mirror of the law and compare myself to a righteous standard that's greater than my own definitions. If I'm only defining my own sins by my own definitions, I have no frame of reference. And so what Paul's saying here is that uh, these people, these church leaders were approaching the Old Testament and the Torah for its genealogies and its theological speculations rather than approaching it for its intended purpose, which is simply to say, you guys need God's help. Now, with that thought in mind, Paul does this really interesting thing in verse 12. He pivots to gratitude. Immediately after giving a list of pretty awful things, he pivots to gratitude. And he says, I, Paul, thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he's judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus." So the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were and will believe in him for eternal life. So to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, my main point is that the incarnation of Jesus means no one is too far gone to receive God's mercy in a transformed life. And if I'm going to hone in on 1 Timothy 15 through 17, which we've read twice now, I come to that conclusion based on four things in this passage verified by Jesus' incarnation, his in-fleshness, that he arrived. If you look at verse 15, my main conclusion, number one, Jesus came to save Add one more word. Jesus came to save sinners, or in my words, those who are too far gone. Jump down to verse uh, 17, and this, excuse me, verse 16, this displays his perfect patience. And verse 17, all of this brings him honor and glory. So let's jump into those one by one. I believe 1 Timothy and Paul is saying Jesus came to save, right? Right there in verse 15. This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. It's trustworthy. It is our full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save. The incarnation of Jesus shows us that he's inserted himself into the greatest rescue mission in history. So here's what this is not. This is not just Jesus showing up, meek and mild, come to play with some kids, give us some nice ethics, and now exists in heaven to give you your best life. 
That's not the diminutive reality of what's going on here. Nor is this the heavy-handed reality that the angry God has, has sent his son in the world in order to murder him because there's a cosmic blood guilt that needs to be paid. That's not what's going on here. Uh, this is my own imagination, but if it's helpful, I think what the Bible teaches is that God the Father and God the Son are on the solid ground of their own holiness and their own righteousness and their own goodness. And they look out into sea and they see us drowning in our sin, in our darkness, in our shame. And God the Son looks at God the Father and says, can I go save them? And God the Father looks back and meets the intensity of his son's eyes and he says, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Go. And God the Son dives headfirst, incarnate into the world of our messiness and says, I am going after them. I will pull them out of the ocean of their own sin and bring them back onto the sturdy land of my holiness. I will bring them home. And I believe that's like so clearly seen in just John chapter 3, verse 16, which many of us know. Like God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world. Not that it would be condemned, but that it would be saved through him. God is sending his son, not in condemnation, not in, in just like cosmic apathy, but to save people who he loves. And if you're questioning, why would Jesus do this for you and I? You are 100% validated. <laughs> Again, 1 Timothy 15 says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save those who don't deserve it. Jesus came into the world to save those who are too far gone. Which is why Paul writes in chapter 1 that the law was given to show us what righteousness is. That the law is a mere for sinners, not against sinners. Jesus is here to save those who are too far gone, and we need to understand our too far gone-ness so we are receptive to him. That list in verses 8 through 12, or verse 8 through 11, shows who we are. And if you're saying, no, no, Trevor, that's not me, that's too far, it shows who you are capable of becoming. Even if you would not identify as those things now, it shows who you're capable of becoming. And honestly, it's a list of pretty atrocious things. And I realize that if I did not have the intervening presence of God in my life, I could get there. I could see it. And the reason I know that is because even with God as one of the most central parts of my life, my heart leans in that direction. And if I did not have him as a buffer to hold me up, I can see how easily I would tip into that list. So though I may not be there yet in the full expression of those things, that is part of me and I need rescue. Now, again, what Paul's saying here is that this list in the law as a whole is not meant to say, well, you're screwed, you sinners. You abusers, you murderers, you sex addicts, you slavers, you liars, you perjurers, you gone. <laughs> that's not what it's for, but that's how it was being used. Paul's saying that the law helps us come face to face, that this is what we will be trapped into becoming or trapped into staying unless God rescues us. Which is why Paul pivots and says, thanks be to Jesus. 
And I want to read that verse 12 one more time. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he's judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Though formerly I was I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent of God. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I was, but now this God through Jesus Christ has rescued me. He's given me mercy. He's transformed my life and appointed me to a brand new life as his apostle and his servant. Though formerly I was an insolent opponent. I was God's insolent opponent and he showed mercy on me and transformed my life and gave me a brand new calling. And again, this is verified that this is Jesus's purpose in his incarnation, in his embodiedness in his human life. I want to point out three quick scripture passages just to verify that Jesus came for who? The too far gone. He came for the sinners. This is Mark chapter 2. A couple sentences. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. But when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he, Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. One more, Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus ate with sinners a lot. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat. This bread is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Last one on the day of Jesus' death, Luke 23. When they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The incarnated, real-life history of Jesus shows he came to save sinners. We who are too far gone. And importantly, Jesus did not come as God incarnate, to play around or flaunt his power like the gods of other mythologies. He came to save sinners. Going back into 1 Timothy, I want to read this one more time. Paul says the law was given for who? Verse 8 through 10. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And then Paul does this weird thing. He says, and I'm the worst of them all. And then he does something even more weird he immediately pivots to gratitude and says, thanks be to Jesus. Famously in Romans chapter seven, he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, like seriously, what a crazy spirituality that Paul can give a list of legitimately atrocious and despicable things. 
and then say, I'm the worst of them all, and then next step with 100% confidence, say, thank you, Jesus. Again, Paul's correcting a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law. The church leaders in Ephesus were using it to say, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're too far gone, you too. And if you guys live up to this standard, then you'll be righteous. Or if you're from this genealogy, you're more holy or more deserving or more chosen. But Paul's coming back and saying, the law shows we are all too far gone and I'm the worst of us. But thanks be to Jesus who came to save sinners. And here's the crazy thing. Those who admit they are too far gone and in need of a savior end up having lives that are more meaningful, more sturdy, and more righteous than someone who thinks that they've got it all mostly worked out. When I build my life on my ego, I am both delusional and vulnerable. But when I build my life on the sober and honest reality that I need, then I'm building my life on Jesus's grace and on Jesus's righteousness and on Jesus's love for me while I freely admit I don't deserve any of it. And that turns my whole world upside down because what God does that? What deity, what mythology does that? What politician, what president, what leader, like what CEO, who does that? And all of this we see in 1 Timothy 1.16 is to display his perfect patience. Paul's goal here is that people will look at him not as someone who's run the spiritual treadmill hard enough, long enough to be worthy of God's love, but that people would look at him as someone who's received God's mercy when he never deserved it. And he's saying this will help them, everyone see that they also are not too far gone for Jesus's mercy. You are not too far gone for Jesus's mercy. And this is why we at All of Life and just Christian tradition in general places a high, high value on personal stories, what many traditions call testimonies. Because an honest or a gospel testimony does not make us the hero. A gospel testimony makes Jesus the hero all day long. It exalts him, it glorifies him. So Paul here is not saying, thanks be to Jesus, I wasn't as bad as most of them, and then found God. He's saying, I am, was the worst. Thank God Jesus saved me. The reality is, we're a room of what, 100, 150 people? Some of you were or may have crazy stories. Some of you, some of us have stories that just feel boring and bland. But the beauty of what is being presented here is that the goal is not for us to look good or for us to look intense or for us to look whatever that is, right? The goal is for Jesus to be the hero in all of our stories. And again, honestly, some of us, 150 people, that's a pretty decent sample size, 150 people, some of you were murderers, homosexuals, enslavers, liars, perjurers, abusers. And if you look at my life, my life might not feel like an impressive testimony, but I was unholy. I was profane, self-righteous, sexually addicted, disobedient. I was an insolent opponent of God, even in my bland, goody-two-shoes, privileged white boy story. I don't have a very interesting life, 
But if you look at who I was and who I could have become, I was an insolent opponent of God in need of rescue. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ has saved me. He is the hero of my story. So my life doesn't display my righteousness. It doesn't display my intensity. It doesn't display my... My life displays Jesus' perfect patience with me and with you. Paul again is saying that his messed up life displays God's patience for you. So when Paul talks about his transformed life, his new appointment as a servant of God, though he was a blasphemer, an insolent opponent. We know this transformed life is a gift of Jesus' patience and Jesus' mercy. It is not how Paul earned Jesus' patience and his mercy. Now, if you want to hear more about the process of transformation, come back in two weeks. We've got a sermon on why the incarnation of Jesus trains us to live lives of holiness after he's gifted it to us already. And if you want to learn more, one sermon's probably not that much. Come chat with myself, fill out a connect card, talk to someone you trust in this room or outside these walls about the transformation of a new life in Jesus. Now, one last thought on the patience of Jesus before I move on. This is on how to experience and integrate the idea of Jesus's patience into your real life. Something that's been super helpful for me is to think of God as having a face, as if he was a real person. Imagine the expression on his face. And you can take that too far, but at its most helpful, remember he has an expression. He has emotions toward you, towards the world. And remember that because of Jesus, in his eyes, you are no longer someone who is too far gone. You are now a son or a daughter if you've come underneath Jesus' covering. And so because of Jesus, he is smiling at you. Smiling. Not furrowed, bowed, smiling. And if Jesus here has perfect patience, and that's applied to you, what does his face look like looking at you? What does a patient person's face look like? This morning, as I was wrestling with feeling spiritually stuck, kind of out of sync, I realized there's some work I need to do with my own personal practices, but and my emotional honesty with God, but the bedrock of the gospel and the bedrock of what I was dwelling on this morning is that Jesus is patient with me, even now. He's not just patient when I was a sinner, he's patient with me now as his son. And so I remember that he came to save me then, and he's here to help me relearn how to live as his child now with patience. And as we dwell on all of this, all of this brings him honor and glory. Again, 1 Timothy 1.17. Paul, after preaching the good news of Jesus, just pauses to reflect and he says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he continues in his exhortation. But it's almost like he can't not give glory to God for a moment. He's remembering, I was the foremost of sinners, but I've been appointed to a new life. Praise you, Jesus. All glory and honor to you forever and ever. You are immortal, invisible. You are the king of ages. Honor and glory to you forever. Amen. Now, there's a story about 
Alexander the Great. Um, Alexander the Great in history, uh, maybe a questionable person, not always someone to look up to, but he was one of the most powerful men in history. And there's this little story about him that is probably a myth, but might not be. And it goes like this. Alexander the Great has this big entourage of, of camels and elephants and soldiers, and he's going down the highway from one conquest to another. And on the side of the road, outside of a city, is a beggar. And this beggar, you know, there's, let's say, 500 people all around Alexander the Great. But this beggar is saying, like, like, Alexander, Alexander, a copper piece, a copper piece for the poor. And one of Alexander's servants is like, get out of here. He's the king. Shoo, shoo, shoo. Now Alexander's up on his thing, and he's like, oh, what's going on over there? And then he, he goes, no, 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 like, there's some commotion. Like, bring him on. And so the servant brings this beggar over. And then the servant, or excuse me, the beggar says, you know, Alexander, my king, can I have, please, just, just one copper coin, one copper coin. And Alexander looks at him and, and pauses for a moment and reaches behind him in his carriage and pulls out a bag of coins and gives this beggar a bag full of gold coins. And the beggar kind of like, Woo! and takes off running, right? Like, this must have been a mistake. And the servant looks at Alexander with disbelief and says, why would you have done that? Copper coins would have suited his needs. Copper coins would have satisfied him. And Alexander says, copper coins would suit his needs, but not my generosity. What Alexander is saying is, I'm more generous than he is needy. My gift is not a display of his neediness, it's a display of my generosity. And this is 100% applicable to the generosity of Jesus. And it would have been foolish for that beggar to walk away going with an inflated ego, well, like, man, I must have undervalued myself. Next time I go begging, I'm going to ask for gold, right? <laughs> no, that would have just been foolish. The, the more right reaction would be for the beggar to walk away and say, what a great king. I didn't deserve that. I didn't even deserve a copper coin. He's so good. Like the beggar with some wrong conclusions of, well, maybe I should ask for more gold. I must have undervalued myself. It's possible within Christian circles to fall in love with the idea that we have undervalued ourselves, that we've misjudged our need for rescue. We're not that bad. We're pretty amazing. How amazing must I be for God to send his son? Now, I'm not intending to belittle you or to teach toxic shame, neither of which are helpful. I 100% believe that human beings are amazing. I believe that we've been bestowed with incredible capacities, incredible intelligence, incredible goodness, incredible creativity, and I believe that God is so much more amazing than we are, that his footsteps are the size of the universe, that we are amazing only because he's gifted his generous image onto us. He's made us in his image. And so any amazingness we feel that is real is meant to point us back to how amazing he is. Psalms 8 says, when I look at the heavens, when, when I look at the work of your fingers, God, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of us and the son of man that you care for him? Who are we compared to you? But the story of God, the gospel of Jesus, my life, your life, his patience, all of that should cause our hearts to worship 
to give him honor and glory. And, and honor and glory are kind of weird words we're not used to. Think credit, to give him credit, to give him esteem, to give him respect, to give him affection, to trust him. In my new role, as someone who was too far gone, my new role is to learn how to express honor and glory to this rescuing king. My new role is to have joy in his presence and his patience as I rest in his love and I learn how to trust his gospel as a child of God. I've been brought in by his gift and I'm sustained through his faithfulness. And as we end, if you agree with this, would you read this last line from 1 Timothy with me? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, you are good. Father, you've chosen to send your son in flesh to rescue we who are too far gone and those who are too far gone that we don't really want in your kingdom. Jesus, would you help us trust your mercy for ourselves where we discount your generosity? Would you teach us that your face is smiling with patience on us through Jesus? Would you help us rest and then extend that mercy to those who really are too far gone? The liars, the perjurers, the sexual addicts, everyone who is too far gone but does still not beyond your reach and not beyond your mercy. Amen.